Hey, during World War II, automobile tires were in great demand. Most of the tires manufactured in the United States were being shipped off and used in the war effort. So if you purchased a car, it was important that it came with good tires. And usually a bad tire, one that couldn't hold the proper pressure, could be identified with a swift kick. Thus, the phrase, kicking the tires. Today, the expression applies to any kind of physical, hands-on sort of inspection. Examine a used car on the lot. Drive by a house you'd like to buy. Browse a book that you're interested in reading. You're kicking the tires. And that's what we're doing here in 1 Timothy. In our last study together, we walked around the first three chapters, sort of kicked the tires in 1 Timothy 1 through 3. Did a once-over. This week, we're going to do the same with 1 Timothy chapters 4 through 6. And there's one certainty here. Paul is gung-ho for the church. At the end of chapter 3, he calls it the family of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Paul marvels, great is the mystery of godliness, and he marvels that God has entrusted that mystery to the church. You know, at times, observing a church is like, it, it can be very deceptive. On the surface, it's like looking at one of those tiny little smart cars. But pop the hood on the church, and you'll find muscle car power. Hey, Paul is leading Timothy and us. He's teaching us how to conduct ourselves in the house of God. The church is God's big deal, and it should be a bigger deal to us. Today, we're going to kick some tires here in 1 Timothy. And hopefully, we're going to let God kick our tires too. We don't want to just pop under pressure. We want to keep on track. We want to keep rolling with Jesus. That's why we need these truths, the truths that God has given us to keep a church on track. Well, chapter 1, verse 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, we begin. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter days some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Here's what you need to realize. You need to realize that not all that's labeled spiritual is godly or biblical. Walk into the religion and spirituality section at Border Books, and you'll find titles by everybody from Max Licato to the Dalai Lama. Today's world is fascinated with all things spiritual. You'll find New Age mysticism and Eastern idolatry and Native American spiritualism and prosperity doctrine and pop psychology and even conservative evangelicalism all on the same shelf. Trust me, not everything in that sandwich is equally nutritious. That's why in the first three chapters of his letter, Paul tells Timothy to use the Bible biblically. Pick out ideas that are contrary to sound doctrine. Fight the good fight of faith. He says that the elders should be apt to teach and that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Why this emphasis on right doctrine? Because the closer we get to the last days, false teaching will abound. 
You know, it's a shock to a new Christian when you realize not every so-called Bible teacher really teaches biblical truth. As Paul says here, some speak lies in hypocrisy. Paul tells Timothy that there are deceiving spirits in the world. And there are demons spewing doctrine. Hey, when Satan fell, he took a third of the angels with him. These fallen angels are now demons. They're deceiving spirits who inspire false teachers. And their goal is to get you to depart from the faith. And they do so by writing books and hosting seminars and appearing on Oprah and creating websites. They even wear skinny little black ties and ride bicycles and knock on your front door. And here's Satan's only advantage in this spiritual battle. He lies shamelessly. Demonically inspired teachers, they tell people what they want to hear or what they'd like for them to hear. You see, unlike God, Satan has no obligation to the truth. Don't say I didn't warn you. But if you open up to all things spiritual, you'll eventually get visited by one of these demons, one of these evil spirits. That's why we all need discernment. In fact, we're going to do a whole week on sound doctrine. But in these next few verses here, Paul gives us a rundown on what these false teachers were emphasizing. They were forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Notice here, the false teacher forbids what God considers good. I mean, Mormons don't drink coffee. But God created those little coffee beans. And I love them. <laughs> Seventh-day Adventists, they're vegetarians. But God created meat, praise the Lord. Sausage and beef. Catholicism denies its priests the opportunity to marry and enjoy a healthy sexual relationship. I'm no priest. And poor guys, it puts an undue pressure on these fellas. You see, when God created beans and meat and sex, He said that it was good. And you know what? He sure hadn't changed His mind. Hey, you please God, not by abstinence, but by thanking God for His blessings, enjoying them to the fullest, using them for His glory. Holiness isn't about what I can give up for God. It's about what God has given up to save me. Biblical spirituality involves the work of Jesus on the cross and the work of the Holy Spirit in my heart, not my self-effort or my self-denial. I love what Paul says to Timothy here in verse 4. He says, For every creature of God is good. And nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. Sit down to a bowl of chocolate briars ice cream. Say a prayer over that bowl. And guess what? It becomes an act of worship when you dive in. You praise God for it. Next time you and your wife lock the door and get in one of those hoochie-coochie moods, just start praying and reading the scriptures ahead of time, and it's as good as a worship service. That's what Paul says. 
We honor God by enjoying his blessings to the fullest. And then Paul tells Timothy in verse 6, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed, but reject profane and old wives' fables. Paul's talking about superstitions and speculations. It blows my mind. Christians get preoccupied with the weirdest stuff. UFOs and conspiracy theories and Mayan prophecies while their Bible sits on the shelf untouched. Why not get into the truth rather than speculation? Did you know that even in our modern technological society, 20 million Americans still carry on their person a rabbit's foot or some other good luck charm? Paul encourages Timothy to reject these silly superstitions. He says to Timothy, and exercise yourself toward godliness. You know, the health clubs, they work off a business model where they sell far more memberships than their facility can accommodate. And you know why? Because they know that after a few weeks, most people no longer visit. Because despite how, everything, how nice everything is and all, exercise is still hard work. And godly exercise, it's exercise still. It's daily. It's getting in the Bible. It's studying the Bible. It's praying. It's getting up and getting to church. It's being involved in a through the Bible group. And it's keeping it up for a while. Paul adds here, for bodily exercise profits a little umpoco. But godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. All exercise requires effort and discipline. You don't always feel like running, and you don't always feel like coming to church or praying or studying your Bible. Godly exercise and physical exercise are similar until it comes to their benefits. Hey, bodily exercise helps a little. Visit the gym regularly and, oh, it'll help you out for the next few years. One day, you'll end up a really nice-looking corpse. That's what it'll do for you. But you come to church and you get into the Bible and you start fellowshipping with other believers. And you know what? It'll benefit you for all eternity. I've heard it said, you don't stop exercising because you grow old. You grow old because you stop exercising. The same is true with godliness. If your faith has grown old and stale, it's probably because you've stopped working out spiritually. Notice verse 9. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. These things command and teach. Let no one despise your youth. At the time, Timothy was in his old late to mid-twenties. And this was an issue. You know, when I was younger, I ran into a lot of folks who refused to come to Calvary Chapel because they wanted a young pastor. I mean, I'm sorry, they wanted an older pastor. I no longer have that problem. Recently, Pastor James told me, he said, since he turned 50, he thought he could finally pastor. His age gave him some credibility. Yet the truth is, spiritual maturity has very little to do with age. 
Paul tells Timothy not to be intimidated because of his youth. There's no age requirement on the calling of God. Jesus uses young and old alike. And here's good news for a young pastor. Just give it time. Your problem will take care of itself. You'll get older. You'll be an older pastor one day. Don't worry. Yet in the meantime, there's nothing you can do about your age, but there is a lot you can do about your character. And that's why Paul tells Timothy, be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. All leaders should be examples in these various areas of life. And then Paul adds, till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Leaders are readers. He's telling Timothy, hey, you need to study your Bible. And do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. God gives us spiritual gifts, supernatural enablings. Romans 12 gives us a list of these gifts, teaching, leading, mercy, helps, exhortation or encouragement, giving, prophecy. But here's the rule with spiritual gifts. You use it or you lose it. And that's why Paul tells Timothy to revive the spiritual gift that God has given him. He says, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them. That your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine." Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to be talking a lot about a pastor's role in the church. You know, a pastor juggles a lot of balls, all at the same time, but there is one ball that a pastor cannot drop. I need to study thoroughly and deliver faithfully God's Word. You know, once a pastor told his church, you can have my feet or my mind, but you can't have both. What he meant was, if I'm out running to meetings and hospital visits and counseling sessions, I'll never have time to give my mind to God's Word. You see, his teaching is the pastor's most pressing priority. You know, hopefully you'll forgive me if I miss you in the hospital, but how will you ever forgive me if I teach false doctrine? and send someone else to hell. But you see, this is why the church is a family. I might be a big brother, but I'm not the only person in the family. Families take care of themselves. Families are bigger than any one person. Multiple siblings and parents in the fellowship, they take care of one another. And in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul tells Timothy to make sure that the church acts like a family. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger as sisters, with all purity. You know, one of the great tragedies of our mobile society is the breakdown of the extended family. Today, the safety net is gone. Too many people are home alone. There's nobody to learn from or lean on. We lack a support system. And this is why the church needs to function as an extended family. Older folks need to mentor younger folks. Everyone needs to treat each other like a sibling. 
And let me state the obvious here. This kind of interaction, it won't happen on a Sunday morning. You've got to get involved in a smaller group. This is why you need to join one of these TBGs. You need to get involved. This week, why don't you break the ice? Meet a few folks. Start making a family. And speaking of God's family, there were certain members that needed special care. Paul writes in verse 3, Honor widows who are really widows. Reminds me of the two ladies. They were sharing a hospital room. One was the wife of an Episcopal priest. The other was a widow. And every day, the priest would come from the church. He would be wearing his clerical collar. He would come to check on his wife. He would sit down. They would talk and talk. And then he would walk over and give her a big hug and a long, passionate kiss. One day after the priest had left, the widow in the other bed, she sort of rolled over and she said to her roommate, Wow, I've been going to my church for 50 years and I've never gotten that kind of treatment. (laughs) Well, apparently there were a few widows in Timothy's flock that also felt slighted by the church. You know, in Bible times, 99.9% of the workforce was male. This meant that a widow had few opportunities in employment. Thus, when the family lost its breadwinner, the church had to step in. But here's the question Pastor Timothy faced. How far does a church go to supply financial help to needy families? And here's the two truths that all churches have to navigate. There are unlimited needs, but there are limited resources. That means that some discernment is required. And in chapter 5, Paul tells Timothy how to allocate the benevolence. Notice the overarching principle here in verse 3. Honor widows who are really widows. Notice not all the widows Paul called real widows. You could also say not all homeless people are really homeless. Not all poor folks are really poor. See, before you can determine someone's true status, some investigation is required. You come in here and you're looking for a handout. We can help you, but we're going to ask some questions first. We're going to do a little investigation. You see, a homeless man may be homeless because he gambled away his mortgage. A poor man might be poor because he drank up his paycheck. He spent it on booze. We should never pass out God's money to people who are going to use it for evil. You've got to understand the need before you help the needy. And Paul tells us how. In the coming weeks, we're going to take an in-depth look here at chapter 5. But this morning, remember, we're just kicking tires. And so we're going to kind of breeze through and get a flavor of it. Verse 4. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. This makes sense. I mean, kids need to give back to the woman who's given so much to them. Your mom, she nursed you. She changed your diapers. She fed you. An elderly mom is her children's responsibility. A church shouldn't assume somebody else's responsibility. I think the same is true of an able-bodied man. It's your responsibility to work. 
Why should we help your family if it's your responsibility to pay those bills and work hard and provide for your family? Our benevolence should encourage you to get a job, not be irresponsible. Notice verse 5. Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. And these things command that they may be blameless. Paul says support the people who are seeking God before you go out and try to meet the needs of the lost people who are dead to God. Sometimes our benevolence gets, causes a lost person to grow more lost. I'll never forget seeing a family. They were rummaging, rummaging through the goodwill drop box. I felt so sorry for this family until I watched them load their pickup truck and then roll across the parking lot and go into a liquor store. I mean, we need to avoid assisting folks who are dead to God when they're servants of God in our midst who are in need, that need our help. Notice verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If you're an able-bodied man with a job, and yet you refuse to work, and bring home your paycheck, and pay your bills, and support your family, God says you're worse than a blasphemer. And that's how this church is going to treat you. you got no business calling yourself a Christian. Did I make that clear enough? But this verse also applies to churches. The church, too, needs to take care of its own. Our first obligation is to our members. Then we can reach out to others. Paul says in verse 9, Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works. If she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. Some scholars believe that the early church had a special order of widows who served full-time in the fellowship. And to qualify for this ministry, she had to put up a few years of some a good testimony. She had to be a woman of character and good reputation. Again, there had to be some investigation before she qualified for benevolence. Verse 11, but refuse the younger widows. For when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. In other words, the long-term solution for these younger widows wasn't a ministry, it was a marriage. They just needed a husband. You know, when folks, when they, when they come to the church with a need, they're desperate. And I understand that. And without realizing it, we can create in them an unhealthy dependence on us. Rather than take responsibility for themselves, we can bail them out. You see, the church isn't their answer. Jesus is their answer. And Paul is telling Timothy not to bail out a sister who needs to be waiting and trusting in God. Give Jesus a chance to meet her need. Give the Lord a chance to bring a good husband along for her. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house. And not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies saying things which they ought not. I mean, you go off and provide a wo all a woman's needs, and she's going to turn to idleness. 
She'll end up a gossip. She'll just be sitting around the house watching soap operas and Oprah all day long. What have you done for that woman? Our benevolence could turn a woman into a desperate housewife if we're not careful. Verse 14, Therefore I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully, for some have already turned aside after Satan. And the answer for some of these younger girls, again, was, was to remarry. Hey, have a few babies. Buy a house. Get back to that long-term goal of raising a family. And then verse 16, If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them. And do not let the church be burdened that it may relieve those who are really widows. He's saying if individual church members can meet certain needs, then they should. That frees up the church to minister in other ways. Remember, the church is faced with the task of meeting unlimited needs with limited resources. And that's why we need to handle these issues wisely. Well, verse 17 changes the subject. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Hey, here's my favorite verse. Pay the pastor double his salary. That's what it says, doesn't it? Just hand him an extra paycheck from time to time. That's what you should do for a pastor who teaches well. Give him double honor. I like this verse. It's a good memory verse. Well, I'm sorry. But as good as it sounds, that's probably not its best interpretation. If you've got a pastor who labors in the Word, here's how you give him double honor. Here's how you double his pay. You give him his check, but then you also give him some respect. That's double honor. And for me, the respect is more important than the check. This past week, many of you sent emails in appreciation for my 30 years of service. And I can't tell you how much those emails meant to me. Your words of encouragement have, have really blessed me. Trust me, I appreciate my check. But your respect is double honor. And then Paul quotes Deuteronomy 25 verse 4 to support his point. He says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. I guess Paul called me an ox. It's, it's okay. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. The laborer is worthy of his wages. I mean, even an ox is allowed to eat from the grain he's grinding. And likewise, a pastor should be paid from the fruits of his ministry. You know, some churches pray, Lord, you keep our pastor humble and we'll keep him poor. That's not God's attitude. If he teaches well, then pay him well. And here's another way to honor a pastor or an elder. Verse 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. You see, church leaders are often subject to vicious gossip. Satan loves to slander. Remember, he lies shamelessly. When someone accuses a pastor, make sure that the charge gets substantiated. Don't entertain hearsay. But neither should a pastor get by on a free pass. Notice verse 20. He says, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. 
Recently, we've had to exercise some church discipline. And more so than a member. When you discipline a leader, it sends a wake-up call. No one is above censure. And this is why Paul challenges Timothy. He says, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily. In other words, prove a man before you promote a man. It's better to test the man beforehand than discipline him afterwards. Paul warns us all in verse 22, nor share in any other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. And then Paul gives Timothy some medical advice. Imagine this. Pastors need to take care of themselves physically, apparently. And he gives him a little advice. He says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Apparently, Timothy had a digestive tract disorder. Had a little queasy stomach. I'm telling you, sometimes this job can give you a little queasy stomach. And Paul prescribes him a glass of wine, a little port for the problem. If he was writing it today, he'd say, how about a little Tums for Tim? Chapter 5 closes. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment. But those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident. And those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Here's his point. You can't always judge a book by its cover. That's why patience and discernment are needed when you're sizing up a person for church leadership. Well, chapter 6 begins. Let as many bond servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor so that the name of God and His doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. You know, some historians say that there may have been as many as 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, perhaps half the population. In fact, many of the early Christians were slaves. And Paul tells them here to be good, to be productive. You know, it's interesting that the New Testament never launches a frontal assault against slavery. Certainly, it abhors slavery and what it does to men. But remember, God changes institutions by changing individuals. It's in hearts where Jesus is enthroned. That's where slavery would soon pass. God knew that. Men control other men because they lack love. And the New Testament confronts slavery, puts an end to slavery with love, not with more laws. Paul encourages Timothy, teach and exhort these things. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he's proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself. Steer clear of greedy people who use God to make a buck. You know these guys. These are the guys that teach you that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. Just make that positive confession and you'll be driving that Lexus in no time. 
It's all about greed. Paul refutes this notion. He says, now godliness with contentment is great gain. Real prosperity has nothing to do with money. It's realizing that Jesus is all I need. That's true prosperity. He says, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. We bring nothing in, we're going to take nothing out. We need to learn to be content with Jesus. And then he says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Once there was a New Orleans paddle boat sailed up and down the Mississippi. Gambling was its featured attraction. It was really a floating casino. And when the ship sunk, its passengers dove into the river and swam for the shore. But there was one man who dove in and never surfaced. It seems that before he jumped overboard, he raced back into the casino and he filled his pockets. He stuffed his pockets with gold coins. And it was his greed that weighed him down and caused the man to drown. That's what Paul's saying. Don't drown. Many a man has drowned over their love for riches. Paul sums it up. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not money that's the root of all kinds of evil. Money's just a tool. It can be used for good or bad. But it's the love of money. That's the root of all kinds of evil. For which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. It's the love of money that causes people to compromise. It's that desire for one more lousy buck. That's the root of all evil. He says, but you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness, Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold of eternal life to which you are also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I mean, note the best way to flee temptation is to pursue godliness. Sometimes the best defense is a good offense. Christianity, you need to understand this. Christianity is more than just keeping your nose clean. It's more than just not doing evil. It's proactive. It's pursuing and fighting for and laying hold of what's good and what's eternal. Paul writes, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing which he will manifest in his own time. Jesus is returning. He's coming back to this earth. Question, when will he come? Answer, when it pleases him to do so. He's coming in his own time. Our job is to be ready at any moment. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. We'll need new eyes to handle the brightness of His glory. And then verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. Just because you got a little money, don't get proud. Nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. Notice Paul refers to material wealth as uncertain riches. Check the stock market lately. 
kind of a bearish economy out there, isn't it? I would say your 401k is sort of up in the air. It's uncertain. Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Inflation eats at it. Recession causes rust. Taxation steals it away. Riches are uncertain. One man admitted, money talks. Just tells me goodbye. Don't you trust in a fat bank account. One major illness can come in and wipe it out instantly. Trust in God, who Paul says gives us richly all things to enjoy. Hey, in this life, there's only one sure thing, and that's Jesus. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works. If you want to be rich, be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Giving your money to God in this life is a sure way to store up spiritual rewards in the life to come. It's been said of money, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Here's Paul's final word. Stay off the rabbit trails. You know what I mean. He says, oh, Timothy, guard what has committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. Well, there you have it. 1 Timothy chapters 4 through 6. We've kicked a few tires these last couple of weeks. Earlier, we popped the hood and we lifted this engine. We looked at what this church is. It's powerful. It has muscle car power. Well, we've kicked some tires. We've checked the engine. Next week... We're celebrating 30 years of ministry. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take you back to the day when God handed me the keys. When he handed me the keys. We're going to talk about that next week. I hope you'll be here. We're going to have a good time. Father, thank you for your love for us. For your good work in our hearts. We thank you for our church. We thank you for each other. We pray you'll continue to help us to grow together and to grow strong and to grow in greater influence in this world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.